Welcome to the Blockbusters and Birdwalks podcast. I am the curator, Garrett Chaffin Kirai. Today we have a conversation with a friend, Ed Rosa. That's me. Hi. My filmmaking partner and I have a YouTube channel, Toothless Richard Productions, where you can see a number of our short films. Uh, the Thing from Another World is about uh, a thing that comes from another world. <laughs> <laughs> I saw two stories in this movie. An unusual space object lands near a North Pole scientific station and the military investigates. They find a spaceman, it gets loose, menaces them, puts them under threat, and they must destroy it. The other story is, I think, maybe what it's thematically really about. This captain is flown up to this outpost where the woman he loves is. This Mm. threat forces him to go make his feelings known and accept the fact he really does want her which is one of the meta stories of the last hundred years in American life, teaching immature boys to turn into men to go make the honest women around them into subordinate wives who serve them coffee. What do you think of the thing? You know, I really like it. And uh, I fully understand that when you deal with genre, oftentimes you aren't dealing with films that are going to be winning the Palme d'Or or the Best Picture. But this one really seemed, it, it was it was really kind of a cut above. I, I felt the writing was really tight. It was It was very suspenseful. It's 87 minutes long. And I think that I can only really imagine removing two or three minutes of its length. Yeah. Because this movie's made in the early 1950s, there's a lot of attention paid to the characters getting out of a vehicle and walking towards a building, opening the door of the building, and then you see the shot of them entering the building. Right. And we have sped that up over the last 70 years. Somebody walks towards the building, cut, and we see them inside and, the building. Yeah, which is and, smart. The movie could snip those kinds of sequences, but there aren't many of them. Mm-hmm. My point? It gets right to the nugget of what's being worked on. And as you say, the dialogue really, really pops. You'll never be able to shoe our captain southward with his heart wrapped around the North Pole. That'll do, Mr. McPherson. What's going on at the North Pole? Some scientists are holding a convention up there. Looking for polar bear tails. Ever hear of Dr. Carrington? The fellow who was at Bikini? The same. Well, they're holding about 2,000 miles north of here, a whole bunch. Botanists, physicists, electronic... Including a pinup girl. Very interesting type, too. Very. It also has informed a terrific number of science fiction and horror movies, and even a Western, The Hateful Eight. Shut that door. There's a goddamn wizard out there. Tarantino's been kind of open that, you know, he was not remaking the thing, but that was really, you know, one of the primary influences of The Hateful Eight. And when that happened... Close the door. Yes, sir. Oh, wow. Keep borrowing from this, too. And it put me into the frame of mind, you know how your mental archive works, where lots of different things get filed in places that you don't put the connective tissue together very well until the right thing triggers it all? Yeah. I can remember when I was first learning who Quentin Tarantino was when I was a young adult and he was an emerging filmmaker, there would be interviews where he'd make references to some of his favorites. And I didn't know the European or or Asian filmmakers that he was referring to. I wasn't that well educated. But he would cite people like Howard Hawks, who is credited as a co-writer on this and the producer of this movie, which was directed by Christian Nyby, a kind of a a mentee of the Howard Hawks school of thought. Mm -hmm. When these characters get talking, there's a lot of overlapping dialogue, 
a lot of expository dialogue that's naturalized in the group situation because we have a military operation on a scientific outpost where the meathead lunks, who are the enlisted men, are receiving their direction from the scientific leads, one of whom is characterized as being a Nobel Prize winning scientist. Yep. And while they're not speaking in language which is alienating to the common person, you can imagine 70 years ago, some of the terms of scientific research and the scientific method would not necessarily have been part of the world. But the idea of taking orders, of following routine practices of self-defense, of looking out for your squad, was very much built into the scene of America in 1950, 1951, when this movie lands. Mm. Above all things, I think Howard Hawks' movies that I have seen over the years are very much about looking at small groups of people who are a microcosm of the greater society. And what better way to do that than a trapped group of people who are in some ways being preyed upon by some monstrous thing. It sounds like, well, just as though you're describing some form of super Karen. This thing thaws from the ice and begins attacking the men who man this outpost. But it leaves behind an arm that has been severed. But there's a lengthy sequence where this group of scientists armed with microscopes <laughs> and magnifying glasses are, are thinking about what this severed hand is. And while that's kind of gruesome, it's severed, it's got fingernails, it's, mm -hmm. they're just thinking about it rather antiseptically. Well, Doctor, no arterial structure indicated. No nerve endings visible. And, of course, I've seen that scene done so many hundreds of times since I began watching TV and going to the movies. Yet I have to imagine that all of these years ago, that must have been really titillating for an audience at home because here are the scientists doing the sciency stuff, proving that the big brains can decipher clues the rest of us don't notice, and in that way, give us a way to defend ourselves against the great threat from beyond. What did you think about the role of the journalist? For a newspaper guy to have a, you know, a buddy in the military and then to just be hanging out and get called to this, what's going to be the biggest story, arguably, of all time. You have the exclusive scoop and the government is obviously going to let as little out as they possibly can. A total blockade on information. So, right? so even if the news has broken, all that is going to do is make people clamor for your story that much more when you return. He gives a really, really great final monologue. Absolutely. Into the intercom, back to Anchorage, reporting the news from up north. One of the world's greatest battles was fought and won today by the human race. Here at the top of the world, a handful of American soldiers and civilians met the first invasion from another planet. A man by the name of Noah once saved our world with an arc of wood. Here at the North Pole, a few men performed a similar service with an arc of electricity. The flying saucer which landed here and its pilot have been destroyed, but not without casualties among our own meager forces. I should note that this is also in the National Film Registry and was brought in 20 years ago. It's one of those movies that we want to ensure that our grandchildren's grandchildren's grandchildren will be able to observe a pristine copy of this movie as one of the important documents of our time. Most movies, of course, are completely disposable, and while this one may have been perceived that way by many, it's not. Mm -hmm. The next thing to consider, most of the 1950s science fiction and horror movies that I can think of are generally allegories of the Cold War, allegories of the consensus and conformity of the post-war boom, which we assign generally to the boomers, forgetting that they were made by the silent generation that begat them as the parents of the 40s mm. and 50s and 60s. And while all of that is captivating, the bottom line is it's, it's a creepy thing to consider being on an outpost totally remote that takes hours to fly to. And if you're in trouble, 
you must simply fix your problem or you're going to be overcome by that problem. That pressure is like a Western. It's really not a horror movie. It's really not a science fiction movie. It's your homesteaders. And you're beset by a forest fire that's crept over the meadows that have gone dark and dry because the season is over. Or the Native Americans have decided to take issue with the fact that you're running cattle over their property. Whatever's going on. Mm -hmm. The creep of these forces are just something you have to figure out a way to solve. You have limited knowledge. You have limited tools. And we watch these characters fumble through those. They shoot the thing. Mm -hmm. does no damage because it's not like us. It doesn't have internal organs like us. They realize we should hack at it. <laughs> and they get out all of their fire axes and their machetes and so on and so on. The ingenuity of solving a problem with what's at hand becomes part of how the story works. That's the kind of situation that you can put yourself in. The movies that I, I can envision what I would do in that situation are the ones that draw me in the most. It's totally like that. Like, you can't just walk away. You can't just leave. Yeah. No, nobody's coming. And all you have is is what is here, and you got to figure out how to how to deal with this thing. It's pretty riveting stuff. A lot of the discussion, as the thing begins to assail them, is how to isolate it from getting into their compound, and then if it does get in, how to seal off rooms, room by room. In a sense, it's almost like being a dungeon master. The deeper problem that the military folk happen onto. This is maybe an hour into the journeys. They realize if it can self-propagate by bleeding us out and feeding its seedlings, that means that it can take over the surface of the entire world. If yep. it can just capture enough people, it can't be destroyed by conventional means. And it's big. It ends up being the eight-foot-tall James Arness. Yeah. Because that's the case, it does present a problem, a civilizational problem. This foe cannot be reasoned with. Thus, it's sort of like modern-day AI, because it's just working to the algorithm. Make mm-hmm. babies, whatever those babies are going to be, and feed them. <laughs> yeah, That's its number one job. And there's a perfection to that. I've seen that same principle apply to things like the Terminator. It can't be reasoned with. It's just going to do what it does, and what we can do is stay out of its way or destroy it, and that's the crux of the problem. For a while, they don't know how to destroy it. It grows back the arm that's lopped off, and it remains this terrible menace that is impervious to the cold. Eventually, they learn that they can torch it in some way and ultimately electrocute it so that it burns down to a little crispy bit of ash. Even the James Arness monster is pretty well done. We first glimpse him under ice, this block of ice they bring back from the space saucer, into their freeze room underneath the compound where they set up a watch. Dmitry Tiomkin's score has a theremin. One of the great failings of all scientific literature in movies, we only imagine monsters that resemble us because, of course, it's a a guy in a suit most of the time. Mm -hmm. Only more recently, to my experience, do we really branch out away from that and go through non-anthropomorphized creatures. But this is just given over to a tall, muscular man who's given some funny prosthetics. Yeah. And he's wearing a suit. We can't actually have a naked guy, naked guy yeah. walking around in a 1950s movie. Yeah. But how creepy would that be if we did? Yeah. Because he wouldn't need sexual organs the way that most of us are armed with sexual organs. He or if be... he had them, their sexuality might have been threatened. It's a double carrot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the really blunt intertext that I kept thinking is pornography. <laughs> This military outpost that is controlled under the branch of some scientific expedition, but is still maintained by the military, contains within it exactly two women. 
one who's a clerk for the scientists, mm. and one who's a medic. And around them circulate roughly two dozen men. It happens that our lead, Captain Patrick Hendry, mm-hmm. is in love with this woman, Nikki. Nikki is the clerk. They have a funny meet-cute that he can't quite remember because he was so terribly drunk. But everybody knows about this on this compound. Yeah. He's constantly ridiculed and needled. But he's also the apex guy in the military hierarchy. So she's allowed to be his. The other woman is just in the background yeah, occasionally. She's basically wallpaper. One of the guys, everything he says is some kind of remark about women, their attractiveness, and is is rooted in his libido somehow. And I thought that was really kind of an interesting way to start the film. Our captain has some funny ideas about the North Pole. He thinks it's a garden spot. Come and bring the kitty. Now look, don't you two guys start. You know, Perry went to the North Pole once. He retired with a sack full of metal. <laughs> hey, Pat. We go there every three weeks, just like it was Lover's Lane. And they're all horny and young, and yeah. built well and athletic, with nothing to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Which strikes me as ready-made for a certain kind of adventure. <laughs> and then I think it pretty rapidly moves into the uh, the initial conversation between Captain Hendry and Nikki. What else did I do? Well, uh, you had moments of kind of making like an octopus. I never saw so many hands in all my life. All right, all right. <laughs> By the 1950s, it was possible to get away with some language, some situations that had a sensual overtone. But this is simultaneous to when TV sitcoms were being born, where Lucy and Ricky, for example, had separate beds. There was this real policing of intimate life, what people would and would not talk about. So a lot of it gets projected onto other forms, like this monstrous creature that is the occupation of everybody's energy, which would have been a sexual energy sometimes, that would have been needing expression in privacy, but is instead projected onto this monster. The thing is sort of vampiric in nature. It needs blood to survive. And uh, Dracula, the vampire, is this powerfully like sexualized creature. Even though we don't actually see that from the thing, I couldn't help but kind of think of that as well. well I think that's good. I mean, the parallelism idea here that we have a setup. A captain is being sent from Anchorage, Alaska to fly with his crew to this remote outpost to investigate some strange phenomenon. This captain is a drunkard, and when he's drunk, he's able to be quite a a ladies' man. But (laughs) but he's found the right match. He just doesn't know it because he can't remember. It happens that she's at this outpost. So there's this ultimate sort of monogamous couple in the offing. And on the other hand, there's this self-propagating, asexual reproductive monster that he ends up having to deal with that is the obverse of his sense of needing companionship. And through disabling and destroying this monster, he's able to finally make nice. And as I recall, right. at the end of the movie, all of the survivors of this outpost are like, it's time for you to go get married, sir. Can you right. live on one salary? <laughs> right. And clearly she's game and willing. So this is a movie that's about the creation of a suburban family. And it requires this monster they've got to go defeat, which is a parable of sorts, an allegory of sorts for the war of World War II that had just been done. Yeah. That with this strange, otherworldly thing. Which this would have sexually been, deviant thing. Right. Once that's defeated, well, we can go back to business, uh, marrying, making babies the in American suburbia. Way. <laughs> with all of our brothers in arms there hel- helping us one way or another. Yeah. Are there particular moments that stand out to you as, as, uh, as really good moments? The scene where they where they set the thing on fire, 
It threatens them in their bedchamber, their barracks. Yeah. It's going to enter where they're sleeping. Yeah, and Nikki even has to shield herself with a with, mattress. With a mattress. And they're going to douse it with kerosene, light it on fire, and see if that will end the threat. And then they turn off the lights, and it bursts through the door. Yeah. Again, of their bedroom. Yeah. Whereupon they exploded in fire. The fiery sex. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> is what they literally need yeah. to try to use. Well, and then they even, one of the guys even advertently or inadvertently douses the mattress that's covering Nikki right. with kerosene and you just set her on fire. It's just a whole bunch of symbolic ejaculation uh, everywhere yeah, you look. Yeah, everywhere. Absolutely. And the monster becomes engulfed in flame but becomes so overwhelmed by the fire it jumps out the window to yeah, escape the spirits with all it, these young men. Needs a cold shower. And I realize I may be overselling yeah. the, the sexual <laughs> dynamics of this movie but I can't help but notice that they're present. In some ways all monsters in all monster-ish movies are kind of a return of the repressed libido of anybody who has created this thing, where it's certainly interpretable that way. Sure. Well, and also, too, I mean, there could be, uh, like, a, a threatened masculinity aspect as well, because they're all, all these manly men are now dealing with this much larger, presumably male creature. It can best any of them in hand-to-hand combat, and so they have They to... comment on this, and they, they come at it armed with pistols and with rifles, with hatchets and machetes. You, another thing I thought of was how sort of little disregard they kind of had for being irradiated. Like, <laughs> right. You know, when they when they get to the crash site. This guy got kind of going crazy. It's clear that we were an atomically enabled people by the early 1950s. And the language yeah. of that had certainly penetrated as we see popular culture. And I totally dug that everybody's smoking. They're yeah, constantly yeah. offering cigarettes to each other, constantly lighting the cigarettes. It's a clear sort of sexual symbol, but it's also a note to the casual American fascination with cigarettes in the 1950s. Yeah, absolutely. It's a way to provide intimacy because you need to be close to somebody to hand them the thing. You have to light it. There's a right. way that you're dealing with camaraderie. You're being friendly. It's a gift. In terms of etiquette, women weren't supposed to smoke unless offered. So like the idea of a woman having like a pack of smokes or a cigarette case and her lighting up on her own was sort of a oh, bit a, of a faux a pas. A gendered norm of no good unless a fella right, offers it Right, right. And I noticed that there was, a, I think there was, there was only, I think that we only saw Nikki smoke one time and it was when, you know, Captain, Captain Henry. Gives it to now take it easy. Now wait a minute. When we first see it, once yeah. it gets out of the ice block and escapes. <laughs> The dogs that are uh, out under the snow begin to attack it. And we see an actor fling about these dog-sized things, which I assume are stuffed animals of some sort. But the way that it's shot and it's hazy through the blind of snow kind of flashing across. Yeah, that was brilliant. It was well done because it's a low-tech thing done off a studio lot. But it, it sells you because everybody watching it, like us is looking through a broken glass window. Not that it was something you had to turn away from, but it was just surprisingly realistic for uh, you know right. a, a film like this uh, of the time. The other detail on, on selling me on this movie were the external shots of like their aircraft flying, uh-huh. because we have a companion aircraft watching our boys in their plane flying through the air, so that's kind of a tricky shot. But we also get the flyby. When Captain Hendry and his crew are approaching this base, their radio goes crazy because there's so much radioactive mm-hmm. material that it, magnetic north is gone. They have to yeah. do this by dead reckoning to find the actual base. They're thrown off course for a little while. But they circle this encampment that they're going to spend most of the movie dealing with. And we see it from plain height. And it integrates rather well and sells me that they were really somewhere 
abnormal called the North Pole on this scientific research base, surrounded by absolutely nothing, and as we're told, three hours plane flight from the nearest human being to hear them. Yeah. The whole thing was, was shot really well. Going back to the thing fighting with the dogs, I know I know. I read on the IMDb trivia that I think Howard Hawks or Nyby wasn't satisfied with the makeup, so that's why there are no close-ups of the thing uh, in, in the film. I just found that that worked so well. Mm-hmm. I guess it's a fine line to tread. The thing Hitchcock said about, you know, what you don't see is scarier than what you do see. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, like, if they didn't show us the thing at all, they'd have a hard time, like, selling the the danger and stuff to us. So we had to see it, but never fully, you never get the close-up. Right. Because the first full-body glimpse of it that we get is when they trap it in the greenhouse. So we just see it for a bare moment of a second behind a door inside of a frame. It's it's well lit enough. You you could freeze-frame it on conventional modern digital tools. Right. But an audience of 1951, oh my God, what is that thing? Yeah. And its arm is trapped, and that's the thing that gets lopped off and they examine. Right. So we, we have to then put together our vision of what this monster is, largely based on its hand. That's clever stuff. And I was placed in mind with, with Jaws and Bruce the shark. Yeah. That we don't see that shark most of the movie. And when we finally do, it's, it's a little bit of a disappointment. Right. In the same way, it's a little bit of a disappointment to see the actor James Arness coming down the corridor to attack our people but it's in dim light, so right. you really don't see. Right. It's just a dude with some cake makeup over his face and a funny-looking hat. He's a conehead, more or less. Yeah. But he's off in the distance, in shadow, mostly. Right. And that is, I didn't realize that Hawks and Ivy objected to the makeup. And that's really making lemonade out of lemons. It is, right. You know, how they did that. The believability of this film is is so much more than so many of its contemporaries. Yeah. And so when it concludes with this terrible warning... Every one of you listening to my voice, tell the world, tell this to everybody wherever they are. Watch the skies everywhere. What if I had been a boy when this movie was out and maybe I'd managed to get the 15 or 20 cents from my parents to go to a Saturday matinee to get out of their hair and I caught this as the second half of a double bill and then I walk home in the fading light of day thinking, look to the sky. Right. I would have been super freaked out by unusual clanks in the night or settling sounds in my home or whatever it might have been and I sure would have looked at carrots differently from yeah. that point forward. <laughs> Even though something might deal with things that they would tell you are too much for children, at the same time, who better an audience? Yeah. Because who is going to really buy it? Yeah, that's right. More than kids. And, and I think back to like when I was a kid, because like as a little kid, I didn't get to go to the movies very often. I, you know, I saw the big ones. You know, I saw, you know, Raiders and Empire Strikes Back and all that stuff. It, it's so weird how on one hand it's... It, it's a bad, a, theoretically a bad idea to expose your kids to these, you know, horrifying or frightening images. But at the same time, it's like, man, I bought every second of it. The naivete of a kid is one of the best ways to experience genre fare. Absolutely. Because they do accept that there could be a spaceship that has crash landed somewhere north of Alaska. And we got to worry about that because this weirdo monster shows up. And perhaps no better way do I notice that. Is the way the, the camera works this point of view. Right. A character hears something, the camera cheats into them, so we watch them react to what they've heard and then move with them as they go to investigate, placing us as the spectator to see inside the story world as the characters do or right next to them. And if you're young enough to not notice how that technique is working, you basically think you're there. Right. And right. that's pretty frightening right. stuff. Right, like you're watching something real. 
This creature is more powerful and more intelligent than we are. He regards us as important only for his nourishment. He has the same attitude toward us as we have toward a field of cabbages. This is Blockbusters in Bird Walks, a conversation between Garrett Chaffin-Kirai and... Ed Rosa. Boop-boopity-doo!